You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Robert Shear is the editor-in-chief of TruthDig.com, a 2007 Webby Award winner for the best political blog. He's a contributing editor to The Nation, a syndicated columnist based at the San Francisco Chronicle, and a host for Left, Right, and Center. His new book is The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thank you. You know, something that publisher left out, but it's actually my day job, is I am uh, a professor at the University of Southern California, and so... I, I deal with about 600 students a year, or 550, 600 students a year, trying to get through some of this material. So, And that's at the Annenberg? Uh, yeah, it's the Annenberg School. And it's funny because that's where I really put a lot of effort into it, and it never gets mentioned in my bio. Or, you know, so. Well, we've got it right. right up front. This new book of yours starts in a really surprising place with you talking with a man that I would suspect you'd never have a civil conversation with. Could you tell us a little bit about that conversation? How did it come to pass? Well, you're talking about Richard Milhouse Nixon, and um, it's interesting, you know, I, I certainly uh, regarded Nixon as a war criminal, and, uh, you know, didn't have a soft spot in my heart for him, and, and particularly because I did credit him with the opening to China and with detente, and also a, a number of, uh, of good domestic programs. I mean, Moynihan, uh, Patrick Moynihan, who later, you know, was later a very progressive senator, worked for him, and he had believed in a guaranteed annual income. He supported the first environmental legislation. Uh, so, you know, uh, but still, I, I, I felt there was such an enormous contradiction between the opening to China, getting along with Mao Zedong, you know, some pretty bloody communist dictators, and getting along with the Soviet Union, which was, you know, bristling with arms and everything. You could have detente with those guys, but somehow you're going to punish Vietnam because they're communists. You know, who are they threatening? And these people, you know, I knew quite a bit about the place. I'd been there, you know, as early as 64 and wrote a lot about it. I said, what the hell? You know, uh, you allowed to say hell? I forgot. No, uh, okay. This is the, isn't it, wasn't this Carlin's routine or what are the seven words? The seven can't? words. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll try not to use them. But, you know, what the heck were they you know, what, what, you know, this was a primitive country. I've been in Cambodia. It was in Laos. It was, in, you know, all, all around Vietnam. What are they talking? And this is before they sent the half million troops. This was, you know, between the flood control advisors that Kennedy has sent. And uh, then you had, you know, more, some increase in troops. But, you know, what are, what are they talking about? And I remember the first inkling of this. I was up in Angkor Wat looking at the ruins there. Fabulous, you know, reminder of how old these civilizations are and how old their history and you know every time we think we have to make their history for them you know so you know here is Cambodia with its incredibly rich complex history and I'm up there and I run into a guy who I assume was you know CIA guy or something but he was an American embassy guy and he said oh that's great well, I'm, I, I rushed up here because I'm afraid this is not going to be around in a few months I said what are you talking about <laughs> it's been here for so many centuries and he said uh he said well you know the bombing will probably spread and you know and so he said I wanted to catch it, you know, now, you know, and I thought, well, on the one hand, he's at least sensitive to the his antiquities. On the other hand, he's b willing to be party to obliterating them. And, and and it was really a shock to me because Cambodia, and I got in trouble with some of my leftist friends. Uh, uh, this is a long-winded answer to your question, but I don't care, you know. Uh, um, uh, the, um, 
Uh, a lot of my leftists were upset about a piece I wrote from Cambodia uh, for Ramparts magazine. It was called A Letter from Non Pen. And I said, this is a country, Cambodia, that does not need social change unless they want it. Leave them alone. Don't meddle. You know, the fruit hangs low on the tree and it drops just when it's ready to be eaten. The, the, the Prince Sihanouk, he plays Charlie Mingus, you know, in jazz on his saxophone. I mean, it's just the whole place is underpopulated. It, it's wonderful. And if they want to modernize, fine. But, you know, don't do it for them. And, you know, and these people have experience the blessings of the West in terms of French colonialism and everything and leave them alone. Well, of course, we never left them alone. We insisted on dragging them into the Vietnam War and uh, lying about this whole Ho Chi Minh Trail crap and everything, and, and you know, which I had spent quite a bit of time investigating. And so I, I just, it was sort of a, a wake-up call for me on how much evil can come out of good intentions. This is actually before Halberstam wrote his Best and the Brightest, but I was very much influenced by Graham Greene, the novelist, who, his book, The Quiet American, but also his other books, The Power and the Glory, and, you know, Our Man in Havana and all that. Uh, and uh, basically, Graham Greene's message, and I think he was pretty much a conservative Catholic guy, Graham Greene, but uh, his message was, we don't know these people, we don't know what's best for them, and we're not disinterested, and we're bumblers, and uh, we will kill them. We'll get them killed. And that's, of course, what happened in very large numbers. So I don't exonerate Nixon for escalating that war. He didn't start it. It was a Democrat's war, something to remind people now that we're all, you know, once again hopeful about a Democratic candidate um, who unfortunately will not at this moment talk about cuts in the military budget and probably end up wearing three American flags on his lapel to one-up McCain. But nonetheless, we are, I think Barack Obama, you know, I, I like a very attractive candidate and appeals a lot to me. I like the fact that he thinks out loud and, you know, I have every intention of voting for him and so forth. But fact is, he won't cut the military budget, nor will McCain. And so here we have, we're at a point where, uh, you know, we're going to talk about improving domestic life and where you're going to get the money. So I'll, I'll revisit that one. But looking back at, at the Democrats of the 60s, that reminds me that we were, the Democrats were the war party. I even said we. We Democrats were the war party. And, um, you know, Nixon came along and he showed every promise of ending this, ending this. And, uh, you know, he wrote an article for Foreign Affairs in 1968 in which he in said, you know, communism is not internationalist. The Cold War is basically uh, 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 rooted in a, a fallacy of sort of a unified international communist movement that threatens us. He said, in fact, it's nationalist. He, you know, there was Tito in Yugoslavia. The Sino-Soviet dispute has been longstanding. And so he said, we can do business with these people. And this is where the neocons come from. It really was largely a movement in reaction uh, to Nixon's detente. Nixon had learned a great deal at the knee of Eisenhower, who I dedicate the book to, along with George McGovern. And, uh, you know, so, but I didn't think so highly of Nixon when he was in office because, as I say, he escalated the war in Vietnam, which made no sense if you're getting along with China and Russia. Why are you so freaked out about uh, Vietnam? And uh, he got a lot of people killed, millions of Indo-Chinese. Uh, McNamara says 3.4 million altogether, and a couple of million at least uh, were done on, on Nixon's watch. He escalated uh, the bombing into Cambodia, got another 30,000 Americans. So I, I think he qualifies as a major war criminal. I'm not disputing that. But nonetheless, his worldview um, was quite plausible and predicted really what happened. I mean, predicted the emergence of communist rule China as it is today and communist rule Vietnam as it is today. And we suffered the most ignominious defeat we've ever had in, in Vietnam. Nonetheless, 
thus far, and, and not, uh, hopefully ever, because that's why I'm writing books and speaking to you, so I'm trying to uh, avoid such disasters. But, um, you know, nonetheless, here are these two communist uh, powers that we couldn't defeat, uh, and what do they do? They don't go around conquering oil-rich lands. They don't go around seizing territory. Uh, they, in fact, uh, went to war with each other. That was the first uh, strategic consequence of, of our losing in Vietnam is that the two communist countries, one was supposed to be a surrogate of the other, went to war over, you know, China had been for a thousand years uh, dominated uh, Vietnam, and they were fi still fighting about border issues and islands. To this day, they're still fighting about these bloody little islands that are worthless. And, uh, you know, so they went, they went to war. And so, and, and by the way, it goes to this question of who are these experts, you know, these Absolute. Are you allowed to say asshole? Uh, you, I think you should. <laughs> uh, or I, my son, well, my younger son once, when he was very young, said the bad A word with a hole. The bad word. But I mean, a guy like Richard Holbrook, who's a major, you know, uh, advisor. I have a sore point about that because the New York Times has had made a decision not to review my book. Like, there's a lot of books on the military-industrial complex out there, I guess. But and yet, you know, who do they have doing the big review of their book review section this weekend? Was Richard Holbrook? Well, Holbrook is in my book, uh, and I attack Holbrook uh, very pointedly because he he supported. Uh, getting a coalition back in power in Cambodia after Pol Pot was kicked out by the Vietnamese, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, wh where's his expertise, you know, here's a guy who supported the Vietnam War, and not only that, supported actually uh, trying to reverse the overthrow of Pol Pot, and yet, you know, he's a Democrat and very likely will end up a major player in a Democratic administration, supported the Iraq War, and, and so forth. So, you know, when I, the reason I wrote the piece about uh, Nixon is, I don't believe in, you know, it's the bad guys who do the bad stuff. Uh, I, I think that uh, most of the mischief is done by people who don't appear very bad. And uh, when they really appear bad, you know them, you stay away from them, you reject them, they, you know, they're, they're dripping their venom. Uh, but, but most of the mischief comes from people who present quite well. Nixon didn't present very well, but... When I look back, Reagan was in, in office. That's when I wrote the piece. It was in the mid-'80s. Reagan was in office, and I was just thinking, interesting. When are we ever going to take another look at Richard Nixon? And so I wrote a long piece for the L.A. Times, and I pointed out everything that I've said to you here, you know, and, and I described his foreign policy and so forth. And he hadn't consented to an interview, but, you know, I'd look back at the record and everything. And, uh, you know, and I decided, you know, I mean, aside from Vietnam, which is a very big aside, I'm not exempting that, and aside from his assault on our civil liberties, I'm in a program tomorrow night with Daniel Ellsberg, who, you know, <laughs> Nixon very much tried to destroy, so I'm not, you know, forgiving him a blank check on that, but in the main, and certainly compared to Reagan, he looked like a real moderate, and compared to George W. Bush, he looks like a flaming liberal, certainly on a domestic issue, and so anyway, I was very surprised when I got a letter from Richard Nixon thanking me for what he called my very, your very objective coverage of my activities. He didn't take issue with a single thing I had said in this long article, and I was pretty rough at, at different points. And he offered, uh, made an offer that I could come see him in New York. So I did. And the reason I begin the Pornography of Power book with Richard Nixon is this kind of goes to a, a main theme of mine that I've pushed in other books and that is that we, we should not make the assumption that there are adults watching the store. We should not make the assumption that the thing being, not confuse the thing being sold with the thing itself. 
you know, American foreign policy in, in my adult lifetime has had, had next to nothing to do with spreading democracy, freedom, limited government, preserving human rights or anything else. It's just a joke. And, and, and the sad thing about the last 50 years of history is that the tyrants end up being uh, as often a, as we are on the right side of things. You know, we supported Batista. The Russians end up supporting Castro. I prefer Castro to Batista. You know, we're against uh, Hugo Chavez now. I prefer Chavez to anybody who's ever run Venezuela. I mean, well, for all his faults, the guy's trying to spread around some of the oil money to poor people. Now, no one's ever done that, as far as I know. Uh, maybe in the whole world has anyone ever done what, what Chavez is trying to do now. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people don't feel that way. I, we had a very critical piece on, on Chavez that Mark Cooper did for Truthdig. Uh, um, I realize the guy's got his failings, but my goodness, you know, for the U.S. now to be demonizing Chavez, who is, you know, actually showing something of a model of, of what to do with your oil wealth, that, you know, rare in that respect. So when I look back on the last 50 years of U.S. adventures and, and so forth, they weren't any better, actually quite often worse than the Soviets or, or what other people were doing. So then where's the virtue of separation of powers, uh, limited government, free press, all of these things. Where, where is it? And I've come to the conclusion uh, that if you're going to follow an imperial policy, uh, those things don't mean anything. They're not a restraint. And uh, th this is why the founders warned us that you should, if you want to have a republic, you can't have an empire. This was the basic demarcation between the old and the new world. That if you get into these foreign inventions, the foreign entanglements Jefferson won about, the foreign engagements Washington won about, you fall under, under the prey of what, in, in my book I quote George Washington in his farewell address, saying the impostures of pretended patriotism. Uh, you, you don't have an informed citizenry. When you are dealing with international intrigue and adventure and so forth, the truth takes an exit. A and, uh, and this is what has always happened. And so all of the restraints we have, that, which I think are very meaningful, they don't work once you're in a war situation. And n n that's what my book is all about. It's why I call it The Pornography of Power. And, and what is pornographic about it? Because it has nothing to do as you know, lap dance with real sex. This expenditure of this money, where we now spend more than the rest of the world combined, we spend more than we ever have in real dollars since World War II, more than during the Vietnam and Korean War, in, in real inflation-adjusted dollars, uh, has nothing to do with security. Nothing. We're fighting an enemy whose arsenal can be purchased at Home Depot. They use $4, you know, three, $4 box cutters, knives, a little bit of tear gas spray. So it's a joke. A and we're building all these weapons to fight an enemy that doesn't exist. You can't do it with a straight face. Uh, so that's what's pornographic about it. And, and all these pundits that talk about it, I have a whole chapter basically attacking Thomas Friedman, who I think is sort of the worst of the lot. You know, they, they all come on as very serious people, you know, and we're seriously concerned with issues of national security and everything, but it's, it's bogus. It's bogus. You know, and, and there was no better proof of it to my mind. Here's Thomas Friedman, the, probably the most admired pundit in print, you know, and we're all supposed to be freaked out that the Great old newspapers might be going under to the internet. Doesn't freak me out at all. But but you know, uh, you know, and here's Thomas Friedman who supported the uh, Iraq invasion, and and then he, first he said, well they'll find the WMDs, and then when they couldn't find them, he said, well it doesn't matter. Saddam Hussein himself is a WMD. Now if you're teaching in a graduate school or anything, and somebody gives you an answer like that, you, you say you you know would you maybe you should consider another line of work. You know, I mean, we mean something very specific about weapons of mass destruction. We mean about the prospect of ending civilization, life on this earth. 
let's not kid about this. That's what it means. If we, you know, we have a lot of these weapons out there, and if that had been a primitive nuclear weapon in, in Manhattan, uh, not only would have destroyed uh, Manhattan and commerce in America and a good deal of our intellectual and media activity, but we wouldn't be a democracy now. There's no question about it. If you look at the overreaction to 9-11, uh, you know, a, 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 an attack dramatic as it was that only resulted in the, the loss of 3,000 lives. Can you just imagine if it had been 300,000 or larger and the whole uh, center of, of New York was unusable because of radiation? So, you know, we don't kid around about weapons of mass destruction. We have a lot of them floating around the world. We just had a B-52 floating around the United States with live ones, you know. And there are thousands of these things. It's a serious issue, the whole question of nuclear proliferation. Here's this guy, Thomas Friedman, writes a a column in the New York Times, Saddam Hussein himself was a WMD. You know, well, he wasn't. It's absolute garbage. So, so what does language mean? What does analysis mean? What does thought mean? If you can get away with a statement like that. And he did. He did. You know, um, I'll give you a more recent one that's ticked me off this morning. I'm, I'm just about to write a column about it. Uh, you know, uh, we have this air tanker deal. Finally, McCain did one thing right. He came out against the mid-fuel air tanker. You know, there's a chapter in my... Mm -hmm. I should keep mentioning the book or nobody will buy it, Pornography, a Power Book. And I, I actually say some nice things about McCain there because thanks to McCain, the chief financial officer of Boeing and the top procurement officer in the Air Force went to federal prison and the C CEO of Boeing had to resign. So right now we have this crazy situation where the Democratic National Committee attacks McCain for having threatened the jobs of Boeing workers. Uh, Boeing is now getting this contract again, it seems. And so the gas the stations in the sky? Gas stations in the sky. Uh, we don't have enough problem with the gas stations on the ground. We've got to put them up in the well, sky, too. Well, what's so interesting about this, I'll give you, uh, it's a, I hope I get to write my column but, but, uh, today, but this is what I was going to say. Uh, uh, um, and, and that what's so interesting is if you research this, where did this idea come from for these tankers? It came from Curtis LeMay. You never heard of him? Oh, yeah, Curtis LeMay. Okay. Yeah, he, he really Are wasn't we on he again? the basis for the general in uh, and the Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove, the clean right. bodily fluids guy. Yeah, okay. So Curtis LeMay had this idea, you know, which, by the way, has been rejected by commercial aircraft that, you know, is stupid and you have to have a whole nother feat. And, you know, why don't you just land and put on your gas and then take off? The only reason for it is if, if in terms of the old triad, triad of, of uh, nuclear weapons. So remember the Soviets in mutual assured destruction, MAD, was the policy. The Soviets may launch a, a first strike against us and take out our land-based missiles. Then we had the second uh, part of the tri triad, triad uh, which was the Navy-based uh, missiles on the subs and so forth. And if they got that, which was not going to happen, uh, then we had these bombers in the air. And the bombers had to be up there 24-7 because it could happen at any moment, right? And it started with the B-52s, and then they became the B-1 and the B-2s, okay? And so he, uh, Curtis LeMay, uh, was the one who you know, said, wait, we have to do, you know, there's this crazy idea of refueling on a plane, but we have to get behind it. We get behind it, figure out how to do it, you know, and so forth with the boom, you know, goosing the plane and, and so forth. Now... The Soviet Union is over, you know, uh, George Bush's father in 92 said, you know, Cold War's over, we can have this big cut in defense. But here we, I pick up the New York Times the other day, and they have this business article, the Wall Street Journal had three columns on its front page, the New York Times had it leading its business page. The Boeing contract is back in play, and this is, they said, a $35 billion contract, but destined to become a $100 billion, you know, meaning it's a $100 billion contract because these things never get turned off and, and they'll be produced forever. $100 billion to build this new tanker. 
and McCain had criticized the old leasing program, and, and, and then they show a picture of it. And what does the picture show? It shows this plane refueling, what, a B-2 stealth bomber. Well, what the hell is the value of a B-2 stealth bomber except to drop nuclear weapons on the old Soviet Union, which doesn't exist? So this is absolutely goofy. The B-2 bomber is a very inefficient plane. Remember, its stealth covering came off in the rain. It was, you know, uh, has all kinds of technical problems. But, you know, we're going to keep that thing refueled. Why? Because, you know, even in the old mad idea, it was nutty. Why would a pilot, who, knowing that his country has been wiped out, right, because there's been a first strike, knowing that uh, this, the Soviet Union has been wiped out because there's been the response of whatever survived of our land-based missiles plus our, our sea-based force. He's now up there. To be doing, and if he sees some cockroach moving or something, he's going to destroy it. Why would he destroy it instead of embracing it? Hey, there's life left on the planet. What, what, I'm going to uh, drop my nuclear bombs and obliterate it? You know, where am I going to land? You know, who am I going to hook up with? I mean, how am I going to eat? You know, so the whole thing was nutty from the beginning. So here we now have, in this post-Cold War period, in the name of fighting terrorists, who, as I say, don't even have a, a glider or anything, you know, a helicopter, we are going to spend $100 billion, $100 billion, not on the subprime mortgage scandal, not on levies to stop flooding, not on education, not on translators, not on body armor, not on anything that makes some sense, we're going to spend it on a gas station in the sky, okay? And then these, these hawks pretend like, oh, it all makes perfect sense. You know, so you had, as I have in my book, Richard Pearl, uh, who started out with Scoop Jackson in opposition Prince to Richard Darkness, Nixon, you call Prince of Darkness. I, I didn't invent that term. It's how he was commonly referred to when he worked for, for Scoop Jackson. You know, and here's Pearl writes this big column in the Wall Street Journal saying, you know, only some green eye shade mentality bureaucrat in the Pentagon would oppose it. They all opposed it. It made no sense at all. The Pentagon was against this weapon. That's why they had to lobby and bribe and everything to get it going. And, and uh, he, you know, but he doesn't tell the readers, nor does the Wall Street Journal evidently know, that he got $20 million from Boeing in investment in his venture capital firm. These people have no shame. Absolutely no shame. That's why I say it's pornographic. They worry about their career, whether they're the journalists, whether they're the lobbyists, whether they're politicians. They're worried about re-election. They're worried about profit. They're worried about career trajectory. You know, they don't really think through. I don't believe any of them devote the kind of serious attention to whether this is good for the national security that you would pick in your restaurant tonight or, or what car you might buy. I mean, you know, I just don't see it. Have it happening. You describe, you were talking about McCain. There's a Senator McCain that you describe in your book, and I'm wondering if there's a, if, if he's different from the one that is currently running for president because they don't seem to be the same person at all. Yeah, you know, first of all, I don't want to pretend I, know, I got all this stuff figured out. I'm constantly um, surprised by my own errors, you know, or maybe accept them. Uh, I think this is an ongoing process of reevaluation. And a journalist that I respect a great deal, Matt Welsh, who's now the editor of Reason magazine, and I guess he's of a libertarian bent. And I should be prejudiced against him, even though I, I've known him for years. And, but but uh, he was uh, working at the LA Times when they ended my column, and he was an editorial writer. <laughs> but I, I really like his work very much. And he wrote a, a very thoughtful book on McCain, on the myth of the maverick. And I've developed a more uh, critical view of McCain after reading that book and re researching and also obviously observing McCain's behavior as a candidate. So you have to raise some real questions about what drives this guy. However, when I was reporting this book, 
Uh, and it, uh, much to, I don't know about my surprise, but, you know, I found that McCain, at least on this particular weapon system, the mid-fuel air tanker, had done what we want a member of Congress to do. He'd done due diligence. He got the emails. He found that they'd slipped this damn thing into a, a, an appropriations bill. He and Warner, by the way, you know, who was chair of the committee. Uh, they found that they, they slipped us in in the middle of the night, you know, without hearings, without any investigation, and suddenly we're on the line for $100 billion up the road, you know, and, and he was uh, incensed, and, uh, and he really sounded the alarm against it, stopped the program cold, and this is what the Dems are, uh, Democrats are attacking him for now. You potentially lost jobs for Boeing in this country because Airbus is involved with, you know, Northrop in, in, in uh, developing the alternative plane, not that we need either plane. Uh, but, you know, here's the Democratic National Committee has uh, condemned uh, McCain for that. So uh, I don't know who the real McCain is. McCain, as senator, did some things that I think are very good. Uh, for one thing, I think he and, and uh, not I think, I mean, I know that he and Kerry led the fight for normalization of relations with Vietnam. And I happened to be in Vietnam when, around the time when Peterson, who was the congressman from Florida, who was another POW, was our first ambassador there. And, you know, I, I forget the exact year. I think it might have been, uh, when was it, 95 or something, I think. But, you know, amazing that it took, what, over 20 years to, to normalize relations with a country that you had tried to pound back into the Stone Age and killed millions of their people and spread them with dangerous, you know, Agent Orange and everything else. And instead of paying reparations, which we should have done, we're instead, you know, finally agreed to normalize, you know, have ambassadors. But that wouldn't have happened without McCain and Kerry leading the fight as two war veterans. And they had to overcome the opposition of the missing in action lobby, uh, you know, which was very strenuous. And they took their lumps. So McCain did the right thing there. He did the right thing, I think, in teaming up with uh, Russ Feingold, who I think is the far and away the best senator. Maybe, maybe Kennedy's better, but the two of them are quite great. And uh, Russ Feingold, who, uh, you know, on campaign finance reform, um, I give M McCain s not big points, but, you know, some, some points for not voting for the uh, constitutional ban on gay marriages. I mean, unfortunately, he's uh, not very good past that point. But, you know, he hasn't been really the, one of the worst social critics. I like the fact that he got Pat Robinson and Falwell all angry with him and that he exposed him in his first election. So McCain has done some good things, and I think on this military spending, he's actually watched the dollar and not been intimidated by uh, the pretended patriots and, you know, raised the right questions about what this has got to do with fighting terrorism and so forth. Now, he's contradicted a lot of that by embracing the Iraq war, which is, after all, the excuse for this big military budget buildup. And as a candidate, he's been uh, terrible on, on the very same issues. So he has reversed himself. So what else is new? One of the things that struck me was the way you describe the military being funded. It's kind of like Christmas. Um, with uh, When it's Christmas, you have to give Johnny and you have to give Jane the same present. You can't give Johnny more of a present than Jane. And it's the same kind of thing we have, our government has. Only Johnny and Jane are Lockheed Martin and McDonnell Douglas, and what we're giving them is $50 billion contracts for things we don't really need. Yeah, we're not only, well, they, they are the companies, the unions that represent the workers, the 
congressional delegations that have them in their district. And as Eisenhower pointed out, the tentacles of the military-industrial complex go into almost every district. That's by design. So you'll have a constituency uh, for these women. What is the big battle on this air tanker? It's the senators from Alabama against the senators uh, f- from uh, Washington uh, arguing about, you know, you're sending these jobs abroad. And this guy's in Alabama saying, no, it's going to be built here in Alabama. What are you talking about? You know, Airbus is going to build a plant here, you know. So, uh, you know, it has nothing to do with national security, whether we need these planes or, or anything else. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think uh, it's not uh, – it, it's Christmas. First of all, it's it's a very elite Christmas. Most of us are not getting any gifts at all. And in fact, there's a great deal of sacrifice to well, pay for Well, we're paying this. for the gifts. Yeah, yeah, we're paying for it. So uh, I guess we're, I don't know, are we all the children? I don't know if I like your analogy. But I mean, the fact is, you know, we're paying through the nose for this stuff. And, and you know, people are dying in Iraq, uh, Americans as well as many more Iraqis. So these foreign adventures, you know, cost us dearly, uh, um, not just financially. And th- th- it threatens to destabilize much larger areas of the world. I mean, I, I do believe that. Uh, you know, Rumsfeld saying that there were no good targets in Afghanistan. They wanted to invade Iraq because this was a, sh- a way to show shock and awe and the great display of firepower. And we have, oh, we have a real enemy there. We can use our planes and ships and everything. And, and then what do you do? You destabilize the whole region. You've now made Iran the major player in the Mideast. You had exactly the opposite consequence of what you claimed you were going to have. Maybe it was the consequence you really wanted to have. The oil never paid for it. You know, we know all, all that. And, and so... Uh, you know, uh, you have an even more reason for having a military buildup because now Iran may be a big threat, you know. And then some people even say China is going to be a threat, which is really the most absurd argument of all. I, I think I have a pretty good chapter on that. But, you know, it's, it's absolutely bizarre that the Chinese, uh, we're paying the Chinese for the interest on the money they lend us to build weapon systems. And then some people say those weapon systems are needed to, to counter weapon systems that the Chinese are not building but may be build. I mean, this is a, a scam of unbelievable proportions. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the uh, Pornography of Power book that, uh, you know, the Defense Department's latest study, which they were obligated to do by an act of Congress to survey the intelligence data and everything on the threat out there of China. And they said, you know, uh, China will take to the end of this decade, but really much longer, uh, to become a mid-level regional power. Uh, and their whole focus is on Taiwan. Now, you wouldn't know this from watching any of the cable or even reading many of the newspapers, but, you know, what happened in the last few weeks is that a love fest developed between Taiwan and China, totally undermining the Chinese are coming argument. This always happens on these sort of conservative right-wing talk shows, which actually is most of the, represents most of the talk shows. And, and, and you know, somebody says, well, of course, you know, you'll, you'll get these guys calling in, you know, colonels and commanders from the Navy and other things. Well, of course. Uh, this is not really important for fighting terrorists. Uh, but what about China? You know, and th- this is the argument Lieberman makes in defending the submarines that we must have because two of them are produced in, in Connecticut. And by the way, the engines for those tankers are also produced in Connecticut. So Lieberman's a big fan of those tanker, air tankers, you know, Pratt and Whitney. But, uh, you know, the, uh, oh, the Chinese, Lieberman, straight face. The Chinese are building more modern subs. First of all, we had a huge submarine fleet. That was more than enough to uh, intimidate the Soviet Union. After all, our defense buildup was credited with the demise of the Soviet Union. So now we have to have new class of all these planes, a new you know, F-35, $300 billion uh, uh, fighter program, joint uh, uh, service fighter program. I mean, enormous 
money. I'm throwing these figures around, but you're talking about trillions of dollars, you know, and, and, and obligation all the way up the road, not just this year. You know, like this air tanker, I don't think it's even supposed to really become on, on, on you know, be in operation until the year uh, 20, you know, and then you'll be, keep building them. It's not like these things, you know, just get stopped because they're not needed. They're not needed to begin with. And so what, what the argument is they, with a straight face, that's how, I don't know how they do it with a straight face, but they'll invoke China, you know. Well, that argument has just been shot to hell by, uh, you know, the, the Guomindang, who after all fled mainland China for Taiwan. This was Chiang Kai-shek's party. They won this election. And by the way, they won the election against another candidate who also wanted warmer relations with the mainland in tai from Taiwan. But the Guomindang won because their guy was favor of even, you know, the, really a, a rapprochement with the mainland. The head of the Guomindang goes to mainland China. They talk about the new chapter of peace. Forget about war. It's not an option. The new leader of Taiwan has embraced it. Now there are going to be direct air flights to the mainland from Taiwan. Uh, there's an expansion of tourism. Taiwan is already the second largest investor in the mainland, Taiwanese businessmen. So the whole thing about China is going to go to war with Taiwan or anyone else is utter nonsense. And quite the opposite has happened. The Chinese are following a very old-fashioned capitalist model. You know, it's interesting. My book was criticized in a couple of places where it's been criticized. You know, he's very good on these weapon systems, but why does he bring in Israel or China? I bring in those things because the people defending, spending the money on the weapon system bring it in. You know, I mean, it's not my invention. You know, uh, the Chinese are coming, which is one of my chapters. The uh, idiot who reviewed my book in the Chronicle, I guess he probably thought he gave it a fairly positive, San Francisco Chronicle, but, you know, oh, sure is good as long as he's talking about these weapon systems, but why is he bringing in, you know, these other things? Well, because the people who want to defend these weapon systems say we, you know, has something to do with the survival of Israel or it has something to do with the menace of China. So you have to examine uh, the, these matters. And in the case of, of China, it's just an absolute absurdity, absolute absurdity. And, and the Chinese are following an old-fashioned capitalist model. You don't conquer land. You don't have to control the oil wells. You just make deals, and you pass on the cost to your consumer. And they're not even facing a recession right now. You know, and we who are guarding these oil wells, we've seen this fivefold increase in the price of, of oil, you know, and our economy is being wrecked by it. And, and, and what? We're paying for the guarding those lines and shipping lanes and everything. So we're following an outdated imperialist model, and the Chinese communists and the Vietnamese communists are fighting, following a very enlightened free trade, pro capitalist uh, marketing philosophy. But it doesn't stop. The reason I, I want to get this across to you, <laughs> to anybody listening to this, the real enemy we have is this uh, pretense of punditry, you know, this uh, pretense of profundity that, that we are subjected to from our earliest days in school, uh, that there are these sensible adults who really care about the stuff. And my, uh, the sad thing I've learned in the last 50 years of my adulthood uh, has been it's just not true. And I, I have to give you, uh, do we have time for this? Oh, absolutely. Okay, I'll give I you an example. Of this. I can let this run as long as I want okay, to. Okay, <laughs> uh, I'll give you an example uh, of this. Um, I, I belong to something called the Pacific, uh, what the hell is it called? Pacific Council on International Relations, which is the West Coast uh, sister of the Council of Foreign Relations, okay? Council of Foreign Relations has been this elite group. And what I tell people is when they let me in one of these groups, you know they're no longer elite, okay? So I, I, but I've been very patiently going to these meetings for oh, over 10 years now, certainly before 9-11. And, um, you know, the other day we had the ambassador to the UN come speak to us in L.A. And uh, I said the other day, it was actually about three weeks ago. 
And uh, he was the ambassador to Iraq, and he was the ambassador to Afghanistan. He's originally an Afghan. And uh, he gives his speech, and it's all always got these cute little anecdotes, and you know everybody, you know, and it's it's all fun and games, and it's all interesting. And then of course there's the use of the lingo about strategic purpose, and even throw in what we do is you know governed by a democratic society. That's supposed to be the big difference. See, we, our president's stupidities, our torture, our madness, our wasted lives. It's all done in the name of democracy, and so forth. So, uh, I, I, fortunately, I got called on. Uh, and uh, don't always, but uh, and I, I said, look, I mean, with, uh, I think I said with all due respect, I said you invoke this notion of democracy, but the basic idea of a democracy is an informed public. If it's not an informed public, the whole exercise is pointless. You know, it's like those women in Iraq holding up their purple fingers and gleefully voting for whom the Ayatollah tells them to vote for. That's hardly an exercise in democracy. So I said, you know, I've been coming to these meetings and everyone in this room, and we have a very distinguished people in this room. Warren Christopher is the head of our group. You know, we have CEOs, we have former ambassadors, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're all people who really spend a lot of time, you know, that we, we don't have to go to the same kind of jobs that other people do. You know, we have time to read and go to libraries and, and so forth. And I said, you know, and so we are the group that should be particularly well-informed, you know, in this democracy. And yet if I were to base uh, my knowledge uh, of what's been going on since 9-11 on the basis of the people like yourself who come here from the government to talk to us, 95% of I, uh, what I would believe would be false, you know. And so I say, you're mocking democracy. It's a mockery of it, you know. And, and, and uh, we Always go, making friends, aren't you? Well, but I mean, the point is, why are we going along with this? What is the point of the exit? I was in a particularly bad mood because it took me almost an hour and a half of what's called surface transportation to get from downtown L.A. to the west side. So I was a, a bit irritated, and the food wasn't all that good. But still, my point was, you know, if we are kept in the dark and we're, we're willing to put in all these extra hours and we're supposedly well-connected and we get important speakers like you, and yet 95% of what we're told turns out to be nonsense, uh, you know, so what is, what's the hope of, of, of democracy? And is, aren't you really sabotaging it? And uh, so there's this movement of chairs in the room, and the next question is, of course, quite on a different point. But there was a woman uh, uh, in the room, uh, an attorney, one of the law firms, and she uh, had come prepared, and they made the mistake of calling on her. So she actually went through about 10 of these real lies from the administration. You know, boom, 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 boom. And again, this guy wiggled out, you know, the ambassador, you know, as well, you know, I'm leaving the administration or whatever, you know, and we have our we have our failings and our successes, and, and that was the end of it. And it was so interesting at the end of this meeting as everyone's breaking up, and, you know, a number of people came up to me and said, oh, it was good, good you made that point. Yeah, it was a very good point, you know, and everything. And I said to these people, but why, why don't you make these points? Why are we sitting here? And the answer is an obvious one. We're sitting there because we want to feel part of an elite. We're networking. There's the illusion of access to information. And, and in fact, it's a, it's a very, it's a wonderfully benign uh, way of, of uh, controlling people's minds. You know, pretending we're in the loop. Then we pretend to the people whom we influence that we're in the loop if we're establishment journalists. You know, and the fact is we're not in the, any serious loop. And, and the guys coming to speak to us don't really want to be in a serious loop, and they don't really want to talk about it in any serious way. And what they're thinking about is their next career move, which is what he was thinking about. Where, what is he going to do? He's probably going to make a, a big fortune in the private sector now. You know? 
One thing you talk about in this book, too, I think it's an interesting uh, perspective, is we hear a lot about the revolving door between Congress and the lobbyists going back and forth. What we don't hear a lot about, and what pops up in this book again and again, is the revolving door between highly paid government employees and pseudo-government employees and the firms from whom they're seeking contracts. There's no visibility, as you point out, and no responsibility and no transparency between these highly paid employees, because they're not elected after all, and the, the firms, they go back and forth, and sometimes they work for the government and the firm at the same time. Well, that's what got that top procurement joint, uh, got her in trouble, because she actually was negotiating her deal with Lockheed and Boeing, pitting one against the other at the same time she was dealing with airplanes that they were submitting to, to the Air Force and making decisions. So that's why she ended up in the, the slammer. Uh, but I, I, you know, the thing about it is, <laughs> you know, why are we, you know, this is kind of schleppy, two guys sitting here, we don't have a mass audience, you know, we're trying to figure this out. Why isn't, and you use the word transparency, why isn't this something observed in the mass media? Why isn't this something observed at the university in some kind of serious way? Just last night, I actually did find in the Government Accountability Office a, a more recent study of the revolving door. It doesn't break it down as precisely as I would like, but you know, it stresses this is a really big and growing problem, not an old problem, a growing problem. And, and it, it's, it's really uh, interesting to me. Um, you know, I, I understand Boeing has been a sponsor for Meet the Press, okay? I understand Lockheed and these people advertise widely. I understand money gets spread around. But I do not understand why there is not more journalistic curiosity about this. Why the easy acceptance of this is sort of an outdated issue, you know? And, and the offering up of rationalizations for that, or like it's always going to be, why it doesn't shock people, I mean, why is it doesn't shock people that this is not being discussed in this election? For all the talk of the long primary scene, we had, we had Kucinich, Ron Paul on the libertarian side. You know, a few people tried to raise this issue. But in the main, we're going through what everybody's uh, describing as a wonderful electoral experience and a refreshing uh, example of democracy. And, and uh, the elephant in the room, which is how w what we're doing to the rest of the world in terms of the weapons we're building and the danger we're creating and the resources we're wasting, and not, not discussed. And everybody knows, should Barack Obama come out for cutting the defense budget, he'd be destroyed. Destroyed. And by the very media, they would, they would say he's naive. They'd say, oh, he, he blew it. They would t treat it as a baseball game or a football game handicapping. How many points did he lose with this? What, how many districts did he endanger? But the validity of that observation, you know, just as the validity of the observation that maybe wearing a lapel button with an American flag hardly honors the flag. You know, what is it? This has become, uh, you know, uh, a, a piece of jewelry, you know, and, and, and because it's required, it obviously lacks any meaning. You know, it's like sad thing you see a lot, in, you know, since 9-11 in Southern California, at least you have these uh, 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 immigrant workers having to have American flags flying from their car because they're afraid they'll be <laughs> marked. You know, I mean, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's very sad, you know, but, but you know, we, we, we use the flag as, you know, a protective shield well that's sick you know it's absolutely sick it's not showing any great love for the tradition of the country you know one thing you talk about in the chapter on pearl is what i would describe as batman politics it's 
There's evil afoot in the world, and only one country can deal with it, Bat-merica. I like that one better than the last one you had about Christmas. That, that's a good one, and, and it is their view. It's the view of Pax Americana. And, and what gets wonderfully uh, mixed up in there is greed and idealism. So if you think that your country is the center of all decency in the world and the indispensable agent to progress in the human condition, which they believe, they really believe this, and, you know, uh, evidence to the contrary doesn't bother them at all. That Those were just marginal mistakes or errors of the moment, you know. But in the main, no one can get it right in the world without our heavy-handed participation. And along with that is that our heavy-handed participation, even when it leads to massive military contracts and exploitation of resources and so forth, is always done for the highest of motives and never to line your pocket or anything. So they, they've, uh, they've got this in their gut. And, I mean, they, that's why they feel no shame, you know. And it's interesting. If, if, I, if you were to, you know, if I were to take you out and I say, okay, I'll buy lunch. You know, given my journalistic background, I can't speak for you, there'd be a whole issue. No, I can't let you buy me lunch. We're doing an interview, and we have to be objective, right? We, we have some qualm about this. Of, did I let Sheer buy me lunch, or did I let, you know, blah, blah, blah. Is this corrupting me? You know, even if it's some cheap, you know, hamburger lunch somewhere, right? We, we, oh, think, sure. yeah. we think about it, right? You know, or at least that's what I, my 30 years at the LA Times, this was convinced me. It was very important, you know, and so I never could let somebody buy me a beer or something like that. These people have no such qualm, no such qualm, unless they think they might get caught in something that doesn't look good, and so they conceal these things, and they don't want it observed, uh, but that's only about getting caught. But they have no qualms because they are on the side of the angels, and so if Boeing decided to give me, Richard Pearl, $20 million for my venture capitalist firm, they're only doing that because it's a sound investment for their stockbrokers, stockholders. And, and uh, he's, that's what he fact said. It has nothing to do with influencing me and what I write or what I think or what I do on, on the defense board or anything else. You know? And they, they believe that, and they operate in a circle of people who confirm that. And then they red bait or, you know, what, Arab bait or Muslim bait or Islamo-fascist bait, anyone who dares take issue with them, you know. If you dare challenge what they do, they, they will shoot the messenger and say, no, you're just uh, you know, a self-hating Jew or you're an Islamo-fascist or you're a communist or you're this or you hate your country or, or something like that. You know? and, and they're very good at it. They're very good at intimidating. Why, why did the New York Times hire Crystal to be an op-ed editor? Is it really a need for greater diversity on their op-ed page uh, or is that they uh, want to protect themselves against these attacks and, you know, uh, and so forth? And that's what they do. You know, uh, uh, they're, they're, these guys are great at scaring people, intimidating people, and they have strong allies in the bully boy chorus of, you know, the O'Reillys and the Rush Limbaugh's and the right-wing radio talk guys. And uh, it works. They get away with it. It's not observed. And, you know, every once in a while they get sloppy, and you know, or you get some guy. I mean, look, this tanker deal... These people only went to jail because McCain can be a big pain in the neck. You know, McCain, if you cross him, he has a temper and he gets angry. And whatever first got him into this, he unleashed his staff to do what the staff is supposed to do. And Warner, who's a guy who'd been around the block with this whole military-industrial thing, you know, been a service secretary and everything, he backed him. And he was the chair of the committee. And that's why the thing came unraveled. 
you know. On the other hand, you got a, a, I think I mentioned before, a Senator Boxer, one of the senators, I, Barbara Boxer, that I very much like. And, you know, she backs this C-17 cargo plane down here in Long Beach that has no reason for being uh, other than to, for jobs and money. And, and uh, again, she's not going to be examined on that or criticized. You know, she's just carrying water for what? The unions? So is that better than the company? She's actually carrying water for both the unions and the company. One thing I, I want to talk to you about is just the way you create. Can I just correct something you said before? Sure. You know, I didn't stand up at that Pacific Council and to anger people. And uh, I'm serious. Uh, I, as a journalist, I never really, you know, was belligerent in, the, in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, always try to keep my listening ears open. I actually went to that program thinking I would learn something, you know, because that's why I joined. I pay out of my own pocket, you know, 750 bucks a year or something. The food is not that good. You know, and, and uh, I'm giving up my time, and I, and I respect Warren Christopher, who is the chair of our group. I think he's a good fellow, smart guy. And, and so I go to these meetings fully expecting to learn something because most of the time I don't even get to ask a question. You know, and they're off the record very often, so I can't even get a good column out of it. And I go thinking, well, God, these guys are involved in whether, whatever we're talking about. You know, what's going on with Egypt or what's happening in Thailand? You know, and I go to these things, you know, sometimes uh, a couple times a week. And I sometimes do learn things, you know. I won't say I don't ever learn. Uh, but I didn't stand up and ask that question uh, because I uh, wanted to be provocative. I asked the question because it's, a, to my mind, the most fundamental question faced by democratic society. Uh, do you have an informed public? And if the people in that room could be so easily um, misled as we were, Right? If your major institutions like the New York Times could endorse by their reporting the war in Iraq and be so easily misled, then where is the value of the free press? Now, I believe in a free press. I believe in separation. I want to know why it's not working better. And as I say in this Pornography of Power book, I've come to the conclusion that a imperial government, uh, by which I mean extending its reach into foreign affairs uh, you know, uh, in this way, uh, is incompatible democracy. And by imperial government, I don't mean humanitarian concern for refugees. I don't mean trying to stop genocide when you do it in a multinational effort where it is genocide and where you're not grabbing the oil. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm for being engaged in the world. I like to see a more bountiful wheat and rice crops. I care about what happens to people in the world. I've traveled very extensively in the world. I, I feel, you know, we're all human beings and, and yeah, I like what Bill Gates is doing, eradicating whole illnesses and stuff like that. So I want to be engaged with the world. I just don't want to conquer it. One thing that, that interests me is just the manner in which you do your writing. Um, at, you, write, you write a daily column, yes. and you also have uh, uh, this book-length uh, column, essentially, uh, could you talk a little bit about the art of writing a polemic? How, how do you go about <laughs> how do you go about constructing uh, a single column? And then could you talk about how you constructed this book? Well, first of all, you know I didn't start out as a writer. I mean, uh, I uh, had a hard time in school. I have uh, pretty serious learning issues that were not described that way when I was growing up because we didn't have any learning difference thing. I, uh, by the way, give a lot of credit in my book to my son Josh, who did the heavy lifting on the research, Josh Shear. And uh, he has even more serious uh, dyslexic uh, learning problems than I do. He, he 
but he did very well at USC and came in under a program at USC where we work with people who have a gap and you can do some things brilliantly and some things you don't do as well. In my case, I because I could never learn, I can't write my name in ter cursive, I can only print, and I couldn't learn cursive, which was the way you had to write essays in those days. It was required when I was in school, and I could never learn foreign language. I can learn on the street a bit to, to get by, but I can never learn any form of sense. And I was having trouble with my organizing thoughts. I was always a good reader. So I, when I went into high school, I'd flunked every subject in the seventh, eighth grade. And anyway, to make a long story short, I was in the dummy class. And then I was taken to the genius class because they gave some kind of statewide exam, and which was totally quantitative. And as I say, I was a good reader, and I was very good at math and science. And so I was taken from what was considered the zoo, where we were supposed to be held until we were eight, whatever the age was for being kicked out of school. And I was taken to the genius class where eight or ten kids sat around a table and with a nice teacher and talked about the world. And I didn't fit in either one very well. So I only went to college because a guy in my high school, Christopher Columbus High School in the Bronx, R.B. Speed, who I assume was some kind of Republican, stern guy, he'd been a Commodore in the Navy, then took up teaching in retirement. And he never, you know, I never sat down with him or talked to him. There was no schmoozing. But he gave a quantitative test all the time in this earth science, which was the science for dummies. And I did real well, and then he got me to take physics and calculus and everything else, and he told me, look, kid, you're only going to go to college if you <laughs> go as an engineer because you're hopeless in these other things. And engineering didn't require a foreign language, and so I, I ended up, and I was actually in Colin Powell's class at City College, and, and in a class of 58. I just was at my 50th class reunion. He, he wasn't there, but he's been very supportive of the school. I have to give him that. And uh, anyway, while I was at City, and uh, this is all fresh in my mind because I, I just spoke in Seattle, and another person I credited was a guy named Stanley Feingold who was a government teacher, and I snuck down to the other campus because we engineers didn't take that class, and I sat in on this guy's class, and anyway, I ended up switching over, staying an extra year in school, and I was speaking in Seattle the other day, and this guy came up to me. It was Stanley Feingold. <laughs> He's now 82 years old, same great, feisty, brilliant guy. And I spent a couple of days with him and his wife. And, and uh, you know, so in terms of my own style, it's, it's very different, I suppose, than everyone else's. And work now for the development of computers. And I first worked on my first computer, actually, in 1958, 59 at Syracuse University. I was a Maxwell Fellow. And uh, I, I did with the, my math and science and all that stuff. And the people wanted the math and economics and all that. So I was able to have a pretty good academic career after that transfer and I worked on one of those first big computers you know took up a whole warehouse or something and did a study there on income inequality actually and so once computers came in where you could actually get your hands on one uh, the display writer the Wang 3 I, w I could then my first book I did with a guy named Maurice Zeitlin who's a really terrific uh, scholar at UCLA and Zeitlin one day after I discussed this whole learning issue uh, in an article, a column, because Enos Cosby, Bill Cosby's son, had been killed in a robbery, and he had, was getting his doctorate in learning differences, and he had a serious learning. So it prompted me to come out of the closet and discuss my own issue. And uh, anyway, Zeitlin, then when I saw him, he said, now I understand how we did that book, which is a book about U.S.-Cuban relations. Basically, you dictated your part, you know, and, which is true, because he could never read my handwriting. And it was before computers, and so I would write out, scroll out all this stuff, and then kind of read it to him, and he'd type away, and that's how we did the book. And obviously, he had a lot of input of his own and his ideas. 
and uh, so forth. But I couldn't really be a writer until you know computers came along. I mean, I would always try to have a girlfriend or a wife who was good with grammar and spelling. I mean, aside from their other great qualities, you know, I'm now ma I've been married for 32 years to a terrific editor, Nardo Zucchino, who's my boss really at the LA Times and big editor at the Chronicle. San Francisco Chronicle, but you know, uh, well, computers it was really very, uh, really liberating. I mean, you have spell check, you can move paragraphs around, you can massage things, you can, you can and I've never without a computer. I, I got the first, you know, trash 80s, and I got the little Scions, and I've always had one in my pocket for that reason. It's my crutch, and uh, so I, my writing style is very unorthodox. I'm very insecure. I wake up at four or five in the morning thinking I got it all wrong. I'm freaking out right now because I have to finish my column. Uh, and then I have to speak tonight, so I'm, I'm very nervous about it. Uh, but, and the only way I, I can keep doing it is I never underestimate the reader. I don't have an elitist view. I believe that anything you do should be, I mean, I, I, come from, I was the first person to go to college on the, my father was a German Protestant, my mother was a Russian Jew. So on the German Protestant side of my family, I was the first one to go to college. And, uh, you know, my parents, who were garment workers, were very smart people, and they read. So I never had the idea that, you know, this, the elite and the others, I always assume, and I think it's been stood me in good stead as a journalist, because I always assume anybody I'm interviewing in any situation, whether they're known or not known, or whether they're drunk or sober, uh, would ha could have an insight that I could benefit from. So I've always loved that part of journalism, I mean, even though I've interviewed all of these presidents or presidential candidates and everything. Uh, I, I, nonetheless, I've been, done a lot of other kind of reporting, you know, about pedestrian safety or area codes, or whatever, you know, lots of issues, economic issues, so forth. And I never had that idea that anybody, you know, not necessarily the taxi driver, but anybody you run into might have a take on what's going on in any country uh, and not look at their credentials, because very often their credentials get in the way of the truth. So anyway, I, in my own working, I have that idea, and that where, where I've taken the fear out of it is I just don't feel I'm obligated to come up with some kind of line about things, you know. If I get it wrong, then you admit it, and, you know, and, and move on, you know, or grow, grow, you know. And uh, I'm only surprised that I've gotten it now. I'll brag here, but, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that I've gotten it as right as often as I have. Well, you were certainly uh, prescient with your uh, pre-9-11 column. You wrote in March that we should be looking out for, March 2001, yeah. that we should be looking out for yeah. Bin Laden. And, and I get slammed comments. all over the Internet for it, too. You know, um, <laughs> I don't get praised for it. <laughs> you know, uh, but yes, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, and Okay, now I didn't come to that. This You're referring to an article I wrote uh, six months before 9-11, and I blasted. Colin Powell and the Bush administration for giving aid, and one of the ways people criticize me, well, the aid was given through the UN. Okay, yes, the aid was given through the UN, but it was a reward to the Taliban for its claim to be holding down the uh, opium crop, which we now know with the opium crop being enormous, in fact, twice the world demand. I just was reading figures last night. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, they have so much in their warehouse, they don't know what to do with it. No one even knows where these warehouses are. And it's supplying the, the uh, Taliban with at least 100 million a year is the latest estimate by the UN. So, you know, Afghanistan is, of course, the major producer of opium. And, and I don't think the Taliban, in their puritanical selves, really were interested in cutting it out, as they've shown. They're, they're the major traffickers in this stuff. 
But they made a show of cutting down on it, and, and the, uh, the Bush administration sought to reward them, and the reward was this uh, $43 million or whatever it was that was given to them, and Christina Rocco, who was the assistant secretary of state for that area, you know, praised them, met with the leader of Alabama, and actually met with them a few, very close to 9-11, I think it was the week before 9-11 in, in uh, Pakistan, met, met with the Taliban ambassador to Pakistan, and once again, congratulated them on their good work. So our focus, the U.S. government's focus, was clearly on w the drug war, that was the big thing of the Bush administration when it came in, it was not terrorism, and, uh, you know, the, this drug war. And, and, and I was upset about this, uh, not because I have any great sources of information, other than the Foundation for a Feminist Majority, which is actually the publisher of Ms. Magazine. And, and uh, Peg Yorkin and these people over there, you know, uh, they were hell on wheels for about five, six years about what the Taliban was doing to women and girls. And they actually smuggled in reporters and, you know, did documentaries on it, uh, and uh, and so forth. They did one the uh, behind the shroud, the shroud, something like that. I mean, they did some really good work. And I went to some of their meetings, and there were pickets outside blasting them, you know, from the, you know, uh, pro Taliban or what have you. And so um, <laughs> I, I was influenced by these people about what was going on in Afghanistan. And so when I saw that the U.S. government was was giving money to these people, I thought it was appalling, and I pointed out these are the people who were behind actual, you know, they were sponsors of, of al-Qaeda. They were harboring these people who had actually attacked Americans and so forth, and so I criticized the Bush administration for it. And you got all these smart asses on the Internet. You know, there's this, you know, some of these people, they, oh, she has got it wrong. The money was not given directly to the Taliban. It was given through the U.N. or something like that. makes a big goddamn difference, you know, so... But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I got it right. I don't get any credit for it. But then that was before 9-11, yeah. And, but I got a lot of other things right. You know, that's what drives me nuts about this. I mean, what was the, uh, it was not just me. I mean, tens of millions of people got Iraq right, and tens of millions of people more around the world got Vietnam right. You know, uh, it's not like, you know, there aren't a lot of people. You know, I, I mean, I got off the BART station uh, here in, in Berkeley on the, before the, the night before the Iraq invasion, and the whole place was crowded of protesters at every station and churches uh, saying, don't go to war in Iraq. It's not justified, and the UN observers are there. And, you know, so I don't want to put myself up, but in the journalist class, I am exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am, uh, on a number of things. You know, I got the New York Times uh, hounding Wen Ho Lee, the scientist from Los Alamos. I wrote 19 columns at least for the LA Times blasting that whole thing. The guy ends up nine months in solitary confinement and then gets cut loose by a Reagan-appointed judge who apologizes to him on behalf of the government and the American people. That was a, a, a manufactured uh, story fed by Christopher Cox, who's now head of the Security Exchange Commission, was a right-wing congressman from Orange County, California. New York Times just went to, went, went to town with that story. Uh, claiming it's investigative journalism, they smear this guy. He ends up. They pressure the government to, to bust him, and the guy is uh, held for nine months uh, under light. He's videoed every time he goes to the bathroom in his cell. Uh, like just terrible stuff. So yeah, I got that one right, and they got it wrong. Maybe that's why they don't want to review my book. I don't know. You well, know? now, and I say I say that by the way, not in a cavalier way. I don't know what makes these institutions tick. I worked at the LA Times for over 30 years, and I really don't know that much about how to play. You know why? It's like working in the Kremlin. And people work at a big journalistic enterprise, 
They sail out of that building and they are loaded for bear. They'll take on CEOs. They'll take on heads of state. They'll take on dictators. Uh, uh, many of them are quite brave. They'll go into war zones and so forth. They'll, they'll, they'll be quite courageous. Uh, many of them are very bright. Many of them get it right uh, very often. In their own building, they're like church mice. You know, uh, particularly in the period before now, we have a lot of turmoil in, in, the, in the mainstream print media and in commercial television. So now there's a lot of questioning. What does this guy want? What's, who's the new owner and what's happening? But I'm talking about that period of when I spent the 29 years at the LA Times. You didn't have any serious examination of how our organization worked, why we were doing these things, you know? Uh, uh, no transparency. No, no. So they, they never, and if they knew it, which they did, they certainly gossiped about it over drinks and everything. You know, why is this one made an editor? And why did we not have that editorial? And why did we kill that story? But it never was revealed to the public, or very rarely, very rarely uh, revealed to the public, and certainly never with a real name attached to it. It was always done anonymously. But the people did not break ranks and speak out. Very rare. You had people like Henry Weinstein, one of my heroes, Bill Boyarsky. I mean, these guys, are, we've had some really great journalists at the LA Times when I've been there. And these guys did take risks and speak out. But they were exceptional. I have to ask you about uh, an incident that occurred last week when uh, Israel did a test run for yeah. bombing uh, nuclear facilities in Iran. Tell me, what do you think is behind that, and where do you think that's going to lead us in the next six to ten months? Well, uh, again, in this chapter that the Chronicle, <laughs> I hate to have sour grapes, but they particularly seem to dismiss my Israel chapter, uh, I made the point there that with friends, because this is a common theory, right, that we had the Mirsham book, you know, with the Israel lobby and APAC and got us into Iraq, and this is if you go on the Internet or our website, we actually get a lot of angry emails, sometimes even anti-Semitic emails, saying you're leaving out Israel and Israel's responsible for everything and this war was nothing for Israel. And the point I make in my chapter is, with, first of all, with friends like the neoconservatives, Israel doesn't need enemies. I mean, it's objectively put Israel in a very uh, weak uh, position. And, uh, you know, uh, I think Israel is torn. Israelis are torn. Uh, you have different factions. So one of the things I like about the reading the Israeli press and following it is that you can get a lot of more insight there than you can reading the American press about Israel, that there is pretty lively debate. And, um, you know, uh, we run this mosaic from Link TV, this stuff on Truth Dig is very good. You know, Chris Hedges, Fisk, uh, Robert Fisk, these people, Patrick Coburn, are right for us. They often refer to uh, Scott Ritter, they often refer to the Israeli press. So I think there's a, a, a lively debate in Israel and real sense of alarm of, of their alienation from the world around them and the rise in power. Of, forget about the nuclear thing, just the rise in power of Iran and, and of religious fundamentalism in the region and that the U.S. policy has stoked this. And I think in response to that is why Omar has made this overture to Syria to uh, Lebanon, to, to Hezbollah, to Hamas, where you now have a, a truce uh, with Hamas. I think they just broke it this morning. Oh, yeah, they did? Yeah, what happened? Somebody, uh, I know there was an attack in the West Bank. I didn't know the Gaza truce got broken. Uh, I think they just uh, sent mortars back over, and uh, I think I heard Oh, well, there you go. So they didn't last. But uh, the very fact that Israel would even make, would make that step and go it shows a, a real concern about um, not using military options that are self-defeating and make you more insecure. I happened to go to Israel and Egypt at the time, just at the end of the uh, Six-Day War, 
and I remember the Israelis, uh, Alon and Diana, I interviewed some of these people, and telling me, you know, we're gonna, they didn't think they were going to hold this land. They didn't see themselves as occupiers. They thought, you know, we'll improve the plumbing and work things out. At least that's what they said, and get out. You know, the idea that you can occupy another people and remain a healthy society is a, you know, it's a contradiction in terms. You can't. And so, uh, you know, um, uh, it's a tragedy, and I think, uh, I think Israel is thrashing about between different options, and certainly one is the military punch, you know, which would be incredibly counterproductive. I can't imagine anything. Just looking at it from Israeli security point of view, I think attacking Iran, a country with three times the population of Iraq, with you know very strong nationalist feelings, uh, be a, a, a disaster from which you will never Israel would never recover, never recover. So I don't know what that was about. I don't know whether that was an attempt to push the administration to be Bush administration to be more aggressive because they're very worried that with the end of the uh, Bush administration, the administration might not be quite so hawkish, and this is an uh, occasion where maybe you want to push Bush into doing something stupid. There are people, obviously, on the Israeli side who believe that. There are other people who oppose that. I think Omar is, at this point, torn between the two. He's in a weak position because of his own corruption cases and so forth. So I, I really can't answer that. Robert, tell me a little bit about uh, Truthdig. You talked about the Internet as uh, the different voices on the Internet. You're one of them. Yeah, I like the Internet, and I like the fact that, you know, uh, uh, we can— get the word out there without cutting down too many trees or anything like that. I mean, I like the technology, and as long as someone doesn't mess it up, you know, with government control or something, right now, it's the Wild West. And, you know, when we get good pieces by someone right today, we have a very strong piece by Chris Hedges. I'm very proud of, of running it. And uh, it's basically about the whole failure of the media and how they're all, you know, really lackeys for the, for the uh, government. And I noticed, I just went online before, and it's being picked up all over the world, you know, and we don't charge anybody. They all steal it anyway if you try to charge us. So, you know, everybody's got it, you know, alternate common dreams, and, you know, nation links to it, but not just them, Huffington Post, and then around the world, in Ireland, you know, Germany, and everybody, people go to it. So I find that quite thrilling. Uh, here's Chris Hedges, who was the New York Times bureau chief for eight years and, you know, knows more about the Mideast probably than any, I don't know why I said probably, than any, American reporter, uh, and uh, we're able to give him this megaphone. If we have something good, we put it on our site, we broadcast it, we let everybody out there know we have it, we send it out, and we can find a massive audience. You know, we've had uh, 20 million, we've been visited 20 million times in a little over two years, and we can do that. On the other hand, we're not prisoners of these numbers. We, we published, you know, I hate to put her down, I love her, uh, she's a great writer, but we have Bemi Ojabamaji, I can never pronounce her name, but she's written five important pieces on Africa. She's a Nigerian reporter of 22 years' experience. And we don't get massive readership for that, but I'm going to still keep running it because, you know, we got to know what's going on in Africa, and you certainly got to know what's going on in Nigeria, which is, you know, a good chunk of Africa. And she's particularly strong on challenging the stereotypes. It's just starving kids with flies buzzing around them, and she gets into some of the complexity and what's important other than that. And so I, I'm very up on the on the Internet. I know all of its failings. I'm attacked routinely on the Internet. You know, I, uh, if I... Do you participate in discussions on the Internet? I just did this morning. I, uh, there's a new group, the Progressive Book Club or something, and, I, and there was a discussion actually about my book. 
and and so I, I got into it and see where it goes. But no, I wouldn't say I do a lot of that. No, I don't. I don't do the blogging. I don't do the. I don't read the comments very often because uh, you know a lot of times. I mean, I, w I really didn't even want to have all the comments on our site, but everybody said you can't have a site. And I I don't have that much to do with running our site. We have a great publisher, Wade Kaufman, who I, I really respect. She. It and looks beautiful. It's yeah, very she, readable. It's really nice. And she's just terrific, and she's very principled. I mean, she, you know, did her master's work at, at SC. She worked with me on my local column, and and you know. Uh, she was, I don't want to define her politics, you know, she's got relatives in Israel, she was more pro-Hillary maybe than the site ended up being, but she really has a very, very strong sense of the independence of the site, and when we started it, it wasn't going to be her site, wasn't going to be the Zwei Kaufman Post or Report, and it wasn't going to be the Bob Shear or Robert Shear site. I, I turned, uh, for our first big dig on Truth Dig, I turned to Orville Schell, who was then the dean of the journalism school at, at Berkeley. I don't agree with Orville on everything about China. We have our disagreements. I've had them over the years, but I figure I, I do believe Orville knows about as much about China as any other American uh, academic journalist. And uh, so he wrote our big piece. I turned to Mark Hooper, a journalist I respect, to write about uh, Venezuela, even though I knew I wouldn't agree with it at all. I'm, I'm much more uh, favorable towards Chavez than Cooper is. I think we've run two pieces by him, big pieces. So I want the site, you know, short of people being homophobic, anti-Semitic, racist, or something like that, uh, I want the site to have a pretty broad spectrum. Progressive, but I've run, you know, the guy who's the right on our show, left, right, and center, Tony Blankley. I've run a couple of his pieces when I think they're good, you know. But in the main, what I've done is, uh, I, don't, I don't run the site. I write my column, and uh, my son, who's 26 years old, one of my sons, Peter Shear, is the managing editor, and he doesn't listen to me. I can't even get him to give me the banner space for my book ad. You know, he's very independent. He's very smart. He's a great journalist. Akasha Anderson, who was getting her doctorate at USC, is very bright. She had been with the Daily News for a long time. She's been on the she was on the internet as a film reviewer and other things before. And she's the associate editor, runs most of the cultural book section. We have a very strong book section, which Steve Wasserman is putting together. He was the book editor of the LA Times. And our feeling is that books are, are getting short shrift in, in the old newspapers now. They're cutting back their space. And some don't even have book review. Well, we have a Friday book review that Steve Wasserman runs. And I'll give you an example. We had Chalmers Johnson reviewed a book by Sheldon Wolden, uh, another ex-Berkeley professor on democracy. is a very good book, and Chalmers Johnson is a brilliant fellow. And that book was at 350000 on the Amazon ranking. We got a great email from Princeton University Press. <laughs> and after Chalmers Johnson review, it went up to 500. And they, Princeton, they told us in this email, they got 100 requests for review copies and interviews with the author. And so we were able to give that book some life with a, a good book review section. So, <clears throat> you know, we, we, it's basically a site put out by, by these people, uh, by Zoe Calvin, by Kashi Anderson, by Peter Shear. I don't meddle in it. They don't listen to me very often. I try to influence. I send emails all the time, but they don't go anywhere. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. I think that's the great thing. I think the Internet should be a younger person's game. I do believe that. And uh, they are younger. And I think it should be pretty open. They like the common stuff where they figure it all out. So I'm, I, I'm not overruling anybody. I'm not that I have the power. What I like about it, and when I lost my column at the LA Times, and I'd been at the LA Times, and a, and a good, very good relationship for 29 years, I qu quoted A.J. Liebling, the media critic. Uh, I said, you know, freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one. 
I now own part of one. I own 50% of one. And, uh, you know, uh, as long as we keep within our budget and, you know, uh, don't go crazy here, we uh, don't have to listen to any, any big investors, venture capitalists. Uh, you know, we're not out there getting the big bucks and then giving up our uh, identity. Um, our publishers, Wade Kaufman, is very clear on that. We want to control this enterprise so that it's something we respect. And that's what we're doing. We've been speaking with Robert Scheer. His new book is The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. He's the editor-in-chief of truthdig.com. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.